Good evening and welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Uh, thank you all for being here on another Washington cold, snowy, traffic-filled evening. Um, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation, who without their support, we wouldn't be able to do these fantastic sessions. And just sitting back in, in the green room a second ago, you are in for a terrific discussion. Um, this is a hot topic, obviously, but you're going to enjoy this, I promise you. And I also want to acknowledge our partners, uh, TCU, who we've been doing this for so long with TCU and the Schieffer College of Communication. I see some purple and some horn frogs out here, so that's good. And, and uh, last of all, I, I would, uh, there are a lot of heroes in this room, and, and, uh, but my hero, Sam Nunn, is here. So please, you know, welcome <laughs> Senator Nunn. Good to see you, sir. Uh, and with that, I'd love to introduce Bob Schieffer. Thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you all for coming. Uh, you know, I, I want to just tell one little story. One, one time, many, many years ago, uh, I was asked to make a, uh, give a talk down at Louisiana College, which is deep in the heart of the Bible, uh, next to what I was told on the scene is the second calmest body of water in the world, and I was taken aback by that, and I said, what is the calmest? And they said, we don't know, but we know this is second. But anyway, <laughs> that's, that's not the point of the story. It was this beautiful spring day, and this auditorium was filled. There were, there were kids in every seat. The balcony was filled. Kids were sitting in the aisle. It was not air-conditioned, <laughs> and there were these big old-fashioned windows, and they'd open the windows down one side of the auditorium. Kids were sitting in the window, uh, in, on the, on the uh, sills of the window, and I looked out, and the window closest to the, uh, to the speaker's podium, there were three boys sitting in a tree. They'd climbed up in the tree, and they were sitting on, on, the, uh, on the limb there, and I, I was really touched, and I said, you know, I've got to tell you, I, I am so touched that people your age would come out on a beautiful spring day like this to come to hear this. And the kid on the front row said, it's mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know this was not mandatory. So I appreciate all of you coming today, and I hope we can have an interesting discussion. Certainly, uh, uh, we've got a great panel here. Fran Townsend is a new member of the CSIS board. She spent many years in and out of government studying and working on the problems con uh, that come about from terrorism. She is currently executive vice president of McAndrews and Forbes, Inc. Uh, she's an analyst for CNN. She's a trustee of the New York uh, Police Foundation, <clears throat> was the assistant uh, to President George W. Bush for Homeland Security and Deputy National Security uh, Advisor. And before that, she spent 13 years at the uh, Department of Justice under three presidents. So, Fran, we're, we're glad to have you, and glad to have you as a member of the board here at CSIS now. Mary Louise Kelly. I, and I can't believe you let her go first, and now we have to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Louise Kelly is a reporter and host at NPR. She launched the uh, intelligence beat there, 
and began her career at the Atlanta Constitution. She traveled the world as a producer and a reporter for CNN and the BBC World Service, has reported from the Afghan-Pakistan border to the mosque of the Middle East to the refugee camps in Kosovo. She has literally been there and done that. Nobody knows probably and has seen firsthand this whole situation uh, that Mary Louise. And then our friend Juan Zarati, senior advisor at CSIS, a consultant and an analyst uh, for CBS News, visiting lecturer at Harvard, deputy assistant to the president for four years during George W. Bush's uh, tenure, specialized in uh, countering terrorist financing and is a prolific author. He also sits on the board of the uh, National Counterterrorism Center. So here is the question. Do any of you think that the feud between Fox News and Donald <laughs> Trump <laughs> poses a threat to our national security? Well, I was thinking about boycotting tonight, but I couldn't figure out an excuse. So. If you don't, we'll go on to other, other, other parts of this, this problem confronting us here. Uh, and let me just start with a campaign. What do you all think the impact of this campaign, it's certainly the most unusual one I've ever covered, what do you think the impact of that is on this whole business of uh, the war on terrorism and where we are on that. It may have no impact, but I'd be interested in seeing what, what do you think, Juan? Well, I think, Bob, first of all, thank you for having me. Thanks to CSIS, Andrew, and for this wonderful forum. Um, I think what's really difficult and interesting here is you have a presidential campaign with all its heated rhetoric and all the silly things that people say uh, during the presidential silly season. While we're actually having to grapple as a country with what is a metastasizing, growing threat of terrorism globally, right? The tides of war aren't receding. The tides of terror are rising, right? And we're, we're, we have to grapple with that as a country and, and as a government. But amid that, we are in the middle, the middle of, a, of a presidential debate. So what that does is, I think, a couple things. One, we move toward extremes. And so the political rhetoric is about extremes, and we don't talk about the facts on the ground. And so the Republicans criticize the administration and the, and the Democrats and vice versa. And we don't get to the hard questions about how we co can collect, disrupt, and manage this uh, and ultimately defeat this risk. Secondly, I think uh, candidates are saying things that are irresponsible, uh, that affect the national dialogue. Uh, this idea of uh, excluding all Muslims uh, and entering that into the public debate as if it were a legitimate way of uh, cabining the threat and thinking about our society, I think, is a real long-term problem. Because at the end of the day, our great source of strength as a country is the very fact and idea of America as being inclusive, being strong because of diversity. Uh, and frankly, the American Muslim communities that, that have always been a part of the country have to be a part of the solution. Uh, and so I think we tend to move toward extremes in, in uh, presidential elections. And I, you know, I was part of the last transition. I worked uh, with Fran. I was so, so lucky to learn at her feet and to, uh, to benefit from that. But I, I was in the last transition. One of the things that you see is that things that are said in the campaign can often hamstring a president when they come into office. And so maybe that's a third problem, which is, you don't want to get into a position where candidates who ultimately may occupy the Oval Office are stuck with political promises that frankly don't make sense or that they can't keep. 
And I think that's dangerous. Well, uh, go ahead, Brent. You know, I, I, this may be the only good news I have for you tonight. The good news in all of this is, I think it's fair to say that regardless of who occupies the White House in this final year of any administration, they are totally unmoved by the current political presidential race. That, that means the strategy is in place. They're executing, whether you agree or disagree with it, they're executing against their strategy. Today, the president hosted the National Security Council a meeting of the cabinet on ISIS in Libya and his strategy there. And so the, the business of government and the, the war against terror goes, marches on regardless of the silly things candidates say. I like to think of it, can't every president who's ever run and been elected goes through three stages of maturity. It is what he says when he runs, he or she, say, what do they say when they run? What do they say once they begin getting their presidential daily brief? By the way, watch how the rhetoric changes. Once they're nominated, each of the candidates then begins to get the intelligence brief. And so I, I put that phase as from the time that they begin to get the brief until they're elected. And then there's a third phase, and that's when you sit behind the desk and you have to deal with Congress and deal with the press and deal with the cabinet and deal with the real problems and make decisions. And so, yes, rhetoric can impede your freedom of decision making, but every president moves. Every time in each of those three phases, any single individual will move as they understand the problem. That's very well put. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the, the rhetoric of the politicians changing as they start to get read in. And you know, you would expect, say, Senators Cruz and Rubio to, to be significantly farther ahead on the curve because of their experience in the Senate with foreign policy and the committees they sit on and the access to classified information that they have. And so it gives you pause when you hear, say, Ted Cruz in a debate say he wants to carpet bomb ISIS. He wants to you know, bomb them until the sand glows. And then when pressed on, OK, well, what about a population central, center like Mosul, where they're hiding and there are civilians and women and non-combatants there? You know, do you carpet bomb them with precision? I mean, how exactly does this work? And, it, and it, you do watch the candidates, I think, as the campaign goes on, continue to refine their positions. I think the one positive thing that comes out of having this debate unfolding during a campaign season, I, I would disagree a little bit and say that I think the Obama administration has sharpened the way it talks about the problem in recent months. Now, you can agree or disagree with the strategy and what they're doing and whether there is a strategy. Um, but you know, we heard President Obama and the State of the Union talk about the ISIS threat as basically as thugs riding around in the back of a pickup truck. He talked about twisted souls plotting in a garage, painting them as common criminals, not an existential threat. And that's, that's different from the way that they were talking about this six months ago. Uh, is terrorism the most important strategic threat to the United States right now? And if not, where does it rank among the other strategic threats? Well, I mean, I'll take the first crack at that. I think, when you, I think we have to be careful about our language, right? And so do I think that ISIS poses an existential threat to the United States? The answer is no. Are they an important and significant strategic threat? Yes, they are. But, but in terms of real strategic threats, I put Russia, I, proliferation, North Korea. I mean, there's, there are a, a sort of bin of things that I put in strategic threats. I think ISIS is substantial. I think it's growing. And I think part of what we're seeing now is this, for the president to describe ISIS as a group of thugs riding around in a pickup truck, 
when, in fact, the American people see Paris, the, the downing of the plane in the Sinai, attacks in Beirut and Jakarta, when we see the ISIS, which the administration has described sort of as a regional threat inside uh, Iraq and Syria, and we see in just in 2015, their external threat is growing. 148 attacks claimed and attributed to ISIS in 2015. There's a real reason the American people are concerned about this. And they don't think it's just a bunch of thugs based on what they're seeing, a bunch of thugs riding around in a pickup. They want to hear somebody acknowledge this is a real and a growing threat. I, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to rank Russia, China, cybersecurity, nuclear threats, ISIS. They're all threats. They're all urgent. What ISIS is incredibly good at, um, like Donald Trump, is capturing the public spotlight. I mean, this is something we as reporters grapple with in the newsroom every time there's some new account of a domestic plot foiled. Um, you know, we were reporting at NPR uh, on the shooting of a police officer in Philadelphia earlier this month. That's being investigated as a possible incident of domestic terrorism. Is it? I mean, we don't know. We don't know the full results of the investigation. It appears that there was some ISIS-inspired element to it. But what does that mean? And how careful should we be about you know the, the press and all of us get much more excited about an act of terrorism than about a common criminal with a gun who shoots somebody. Um, and unlike 10 years ago when you were looking at an Al-Qaeda-inspired event, there was usually email contact, there was usually some sort of travel and training. The links were easier to follow. And, and we see now, in, in not all cases, but in many cases of these homegrown jihadists here, a case where it looks like somebody maybe has been nursing a grievance for a long time and at the very end, right before execution in the heat of the moment, claims some sort of ISIS link. Is it real? We don't know. We know it gets a lot more attention. Did, did, did the administration play down the terrorist threat one? I mean, in, in their rhetoric, I remember before the last election, Osama bin Laden is dead, General Motors is alive. And, and that was kind of the narrative, and then we had Benghazi. Yeah. No, I think they did. And I think, uh, you recall, Bob, when we had discussions, including here at CSIS, the administration at the start of its term in 2009 very much wanted to constrain both the language and the scope of how we thought about and talked about the war on terror. And so the war on terror became the war on al-Qaeda or war on al-Qaeda core. Uh, we no longer talked about the underlying ideology that was motivating this movement and giving animation to some of these disaffected individuals and groups. Um, and in some ways, they, they weren't talking about what was coming around the corner. Uh, and in some ways, we were blind to some of the developments in Syria and Iraq, uh, both because we weren't on the ground, but because of the, the rapidity with which these groups adapted. Uh, and also, uh, we, we, I think, very much wanted to play down the, the sense that this thing was still alive, still kicking, and still global. And I think the administration is now trying to recalibrate. I think Mary Louise is right that the political campaign and the realities of San Bernardino, Paris, uh, Beirut, the Sinai uh, civilian aircraft uh, being taken down, all sort of are undeniable facts that something different is apace, that this group has, uh, has maintained momentum. It now has eight provinces that are declared parts of the ISIS universe. And so you look at the map, it's an ink blot of ISIS influence. Other groups clamoring to be a part of it in Bangladesh and Indonesia and elsewhere. And so 
there is no other answer but to say, look, we do have a threat here. It's beyond Iraq and Syria, and we have to think differently about this. That's why, as Fran mentioned, there was a meeting just this morning about Libya, uh, and Libya not in the context of Benghazi, not in the context of the political solution, but how do you deal with the fact that you have a terrorist group that runs a city called Sert, that you have Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State battling for influence in Benghazi and Derna, and the fact that this is now a beachhead for the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Uh, and I think, again, this is a challenge for the United States because we're in a very different environment where we don't have a lot of government counterparts with whom to, to operate. A lot of this is happening in ungoverned spaces. And one of the adaptations of this group is actually to say, we can actually govern. Uh, if you look at their media profile, the vast majority of the videos that they put out are not beheadings, not these horrific things that we've seen uh, so graphically in, in the media over the past few months, but it's about their ability to govern. We have police on the street. There is food in the stalls. Uh, we know how to uh, pick up the trash, right? They are trying to set in place a sense of governance and an ideology that actually attracts uh, people from around the world, and it's worked. And I think we've been slow to, to realize that and the potential adaptations. And I've talked a little too long, but just one other point. I think we, we run the risk, the administration has injected this language of existential risk, which is really interesting, because I think the president has really tried to recalibrate our sense of risk, to create a sense of resilience in our country, but also to say, look, these aren't 10-foot giants, right? We shouldn't be scared, we shouldn't be hysterical, we shouldn't rush in too quickly or precipitously. And I think that's the right instinct. The problem is, um, in not being urgent or proactive about the threat, it begins to adapt in ways that we're not gonna like and that we're not gonna be able to control as well. And I think that's really the threat here, the, the quickening of the adaptation of this threat, which is outpacing our policy and even our rhetoric. Let's go back. Uh, I want to talk about some of the pressure points. Let's, let's just go back and talk about Libya a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. You brought it up. What, what is the situation there? So, uh, you know, this, the slowness and the impulse to have a slowness to act, the administration had publicly stated that what they were trying to accomplish was they, they needed a partner, a government in Libya, that would be their partner in fighting ISIS. And that's really why the slowness. Um, the meeting today is, was really a function of the enormous and quick-growing presence of ISIS. Not only do they control CERT and cities there, there's thousands of ISIS fighters, somewhere less than 5,000, more than 1,000, but several thousand ISIS fighters in Libya um, can, taking control of more and more territory, making it less and less likely that Libya itself will be able to form a government and it's an acknowledgment on the part of the United States, maybe we can't wait for a government to be formed in Libya. We have to act before this becomes, again, a, a failed, a totally failed state beyond, beyond which we can cope with. And so I, I do think what, what we know from our experience, look, ISIS is a much different threat from Al-Qaeda. They are bigger, they are, they've got better media, they've got more weapons and more money, They've got just more capability, which makes them a greater threat. Um, and we know from our, but we know from our experience with Al Qaeda, the greatest threat to the U.S. homeland is ungoverned space, failed states. And increasingly, Libya is a failed state. And so the administration, to protect us here at home, 
has, is coming to grappling with and coming to grips with the fact that they're going to have to address Libya. Is part of, do you think, Fran, part of what we're seeing in Libya a result of some form of success in terms of the strategy tackling Iraq and Syria? I mean, are, are we seeing more fighters in Libya because they can't get into Iraq and Syria or they no. can't move freely and operate? You think no, this is a separate development? Right. So I, I, it, certainly the flow has somewhat stemmed of foreign fighters into Iraq and Syria. We know that from public reporting. Um, but it hasn't fallen off altogether. Sure. Um, this is part of it, ISIS is engaging in a very deliberate strategy to increase their external operations. They have an apparatus now for external operations planning. They have a way of, of sort of populating these operations, whether you're looking at Jakarta or the Sinai and Libya. This is all part of it. I mean, I think we have to come to terms with the idea that this is the execution of a very deliberate strategy to globalize their effort. And well, uh, what about, uh, what about uh, Indonesia right now? You mentioned Jakarta. Does this mean that? Uh, this is metastasized now in Asia? I, I, I think it has the potential. And, and I think the real danger here is if you look at the post 9-11 period, if you look around the world, you say, where did we actually have success in our counterterrorism strategy? It was actually in Southeast Asia. You had uh, partners in the region who were um, dealing with the threat, dealing with the, the hard elements of counterterrorism, making arrests, uh, dealing with insurgencies. They were doing the soft things. They were doing the countering of violent extremism. Singapore, in some ways, has had the gold standard for uh, these programs of reintegrating radicalized youth, bringing their families and communities together. There was great information sharing. The US was supporting. The Australians were doing all sorts of training, for example, to the Indonesian police, which has been so effective and good. Uh, and even though the, the ideology didn't go away, and even though you still had members of Jema Islamiyah and other groups like Abu Sayyaf still roaming around, what was, what was seen in 2001, 2002 as the next front of the war on terror suddenly became sort of a success story. The challenge now, and you hear this from friends in the region, is they are worried that the ideology is reanimating. And the idea of ISIS and the caliphate is actually reanimating uh, elements of these networks and creating new recruits. Uh, one colleague of mine uh, from the region told me two years ago that what they were beginning to see were clusters and cells of individuals, doctors, engineers, clerics, students, getting together and traveling to the region because the allure of the Islamic State was so real. Um, and so that's worried them. And I think the, the, the problem with ISIS is what it does to inspire and motivate a movement globally, where it may have been moribund, may have, been, may have lost traction or momentum, but it's breathing life into it. And I think that's really the danger of what we've seen in Indonesia. It's the danger of San Bernardino. It's this notion that the idea and the ideology has an animating feature well beyond the borders of Iraq and Syria. And I think that's a, that's a real challenge. By the way, just on Libya, um, I was fortunate or unfortunate to be there a few times post-2012. Uh, I know Fran was there uh, in, before uh, during her government capacity. So, so we've been on the ground. Um, the one thing I will tell you that in the spring of 2012, people already understood that Al-Qaeda and other extremists were taking hold of cities like Derna, that they were dug in and these were cities that they were beginning to govern. And I think the, the reality that these terrorist groups have actually occupied major cities, Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, are actually governing it, and that somehow that's a part of the new reality 
is actually shocking uh, in, in many ways. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Mukalla, they run an entire city and an entire swath of territory. Um, this is a real problem, and there is no easy solution because they have to be physically dislodged and their ideology has to be undermined. I think the, the Indonesia question you raise and the, the points you just made also make an interesting statement about how little we still know about the command structure, how ISIS is organized. You know, there's been a lot of, I think, excellent reporting over the last several months about Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, who appears to be as much of a polar opposite from Zarqawi, his predecessor, as you could get. Uh, you know, he claims lineage from the Prophet Allah. He is a scholar. Uh, but it's not entirely clear to anyone exactly you know, how orders, communications, money is being funneled out to something like Indonesia from Mosul and Raqqa, um, and who's running things and to what extent this is a centralized operation. And that's something that will be really interesting to get into in the coming months. And the, the difficulty in understanding that is on, in several different ways. So we no longer have a presence, a US official government presence in Libya or Yemen or Syria. And so the, the ways that we collect that kind of information, this is now a hostile and denied area to us, very difficult. Technology has advanced in the years since we had to battle Al-Qaeda. And so many of the techniques that made us very effective against Al-Qaeda are denied to us because of encryption. And that doesn't even get to the debate about should there be better cooperation between the government and the private sector. Encryption itself is denying us content of communications, even if there wasn't that rub between the government and the private sector that were denied. And so this is a much harder problem against a much more lethal sort of capable enemy. Um, and so to Juan's yeah. point, this is, gonna, this is a long-term problem. You know, as somebody mentioned, the allure of the Islamic State, uh, <clears throat> I think for those of us in the West, and I count myself among that group, what is the lure of the Islamic State? That, that's hard for me to understand. And it must be something more than religious fervor. It must, it's got to be something more than, uh, you know, just wanting control. What is it that motivates these young people? What, what's, what's, Causes. Well, I mean, the social media outreach is spectacularly sophisticated compared to what we saw for al-Qaeda, where, where you, know, you have Zawahiri still issuing these rambling, long monologues that are weeks or months behind the news curve. ISIS is on the ball across every platform. There was a, a fascinating chapter in um, Peter Bergen's new book, Peter Bergen, respected CNN journalist and, and a think tanker around Washington. He has a book out, I think this week, uh, United States of Jihad, in which he looks at this question of why, why would you, you know, if you're a well-off teenager in Texas, what's the allure? Why, why go to try to get to Syria and, and go join these guys? And he describes a, an imam at a mosque in Northern Virginia who's talking to teenage boys mostly, although interestingly, one of the trends we're seeing is more and more women and girls being attracted to this um, because social media doesn't care who you are. The message is out there for everybody. But trying to counsel teenagers and young people who he feels are maybe vulnerable and, are, and who he sees suddenly growing a beard or suddenly becoming much more extreme in the way they dress and talk and socialize. And he'll talk to them for two hours and ask them, do you believe ISIS are true Muslims? And he kind of thinks he's gotten through. 
and then these people go home and they're getting barraged across every social media platform with people who know their name, who want to talk to them, who are checking in with them, who are luring them along with this promise. I'm sure for some people there is a pure religious drive, but for others, you, you're a teenager, you're looking for a mission, you're looking for a purpose, and you see what is presented as um, a calling, a way to do something with your life. And ISIS, and ISIS tapped into something that Al-Qaeda didn't understand. Al-Qaeda talked about the historic and mythical caliphate. ISIS has got territory. They've built it. Their narrative was one of invincibility. They actually delivered on the promise that Al-Qaeda could only talk about. And it's one of the ways ISIS sort of stole the thunder, if you will. And that's the attraction. This is no longer a mythical, aspirational caliphate. It exists. And the pictures now that we're seeing on social media of fruit stands and playgrounds and police patrols make it very real. And there's something interesting I just noticed. Both you and I just talked about Al-Qaeda in the past tense. What Al-Qaeda didn't get, what Al-Qaeda did, which is kind of interesting in a conversation about terrorism that we're... Well, Al-Qaeda continues so to exist right. and adapt, right? Sure. Largely through its affiliates. Uh, we've seen recently the attacks in West Africa, Burkina Faso, Mali. Those were Al-Qaeda attacks. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is still incredibly lethal, still has... Uh, you know, the chief bomb maker that U.S. officials and other counterterrorism officials are so worried about, given his innovation and all the training that he's done. They run territory. Uh, they are in this strategic and somewhat, some would say, theological competition with ISIS for the vanguard of this movement. Uh, we're certainly seeing that on the ground, as Fran said, in Syria with Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, at times fighting with ISIS and, and trying to hive off um, operatives and, 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 uh, and personnel. Uh, but I, I do think the, the, the challenge here is that Al-Qaeda was the forerunner of this ideology, Bob, that said the West is at war with Islam. You have a, a, a moral, ethical, religious duty to be a part of the defense of that, uh, against that assault. Um, and we're going we're gonna to be the vanguard with you. And, and you, could, you have to do this violently. There, there is no other way. There isn't reform. There isn't a political process. Democracy doesn't work. Um, what ISIS has done, as Fran said, is they've given life to the idea and the animating feature of a political structure that harkens back to the historical roots of, of, uh, of the, the Muslim era, where there were uh, elements of Muslim rule in swaths of territory, uh, where they want to apply Sharia law, uh, and way, where they are trying to dictate how things are, are being governed. And I think. To your earlier question about what's the, what's the greatest strategic threat, it's the fact that this group, as well as China and Russia, are reshaping the map, right? This group has actually erased borders. They've taken over cities. They've given sort of uh, tangible manifestation to the wild imaginings of, of what Al-Qaeda only dreamed of, to Fran's point. And that's very real to people, Bob, in, the, in this, in this uh, universe. And to, Mary Louise's point, they're very strategic about how they, they pick out the recruits. They put out the messages broadly. They use social media to pinpoint actors. They move them off particular uh, sites and programs. They try to isolate them. They try to hive off their other uh, networks. And so the, don't listen to the imam, don't listen to them. So they, they begin the, the, the process of radicalization. And then they move toward mobilization, either come here or do something in place. And one of the dangers of the movement is they've been very successful at this notion of attacking in place, or at least returning fighters, as we saw in Paris, uh, 
in a way that is incredibly strategic uh, and tactically uh, very dangerous. We should let's talk about just the numbers for a second. Sure. So, if you look at ISIS in Iraq and Syria, the estimates are somewhere around 22,000, give, give or take. Uh, and if you take those 22,000, your next question In Iraq is, and Syria. In Iraq and Syria. How many of them are Westerners? To Mary Louise's point, how many do you have to worry about that have been actually lured from Western societies, Europe and the United States, into this fight? Right now, they estimate that number at about 6,000. Most of those 6,000, of that 6,000, several hundred are Americans. Um, what remains of the Westerners who've been lured to the fight are largely Europeans and largely from visa waiver countries. And so when you begin to understand the magnitude of the problem, I mean, it's, it's a substantial uh, problem for Homeland Security, the FBI, given the resources to tackle. Um, and you don't assume that you're going to, you know, they do make every effort to track those who try to, who go to the fight and try to come back in. But for a variety of reasons, that's not as simple as it sounds. And so they presume that there are, they, we know that there are those individuals inside the United States, and that's why you worry about the attack in place. If, if, <clears throat> I'm going to ask all of you the same question. If, if you were advising somebody seeking the presidency right now, or you were at the White House advising this president. What would you advise? I mean, what would you say, Mr. Candidate, Mr. President, here's what you need to know. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we're not doing. I'll start with one. Um, I think it starts with the premise of we, we need to inject and have a sense of urgency about this because we can't allow this metastasizing threat. Even though we, we, we admit and we want to uh, set out a sense and a tone of calm and balance in terms of the risk, we can't allow this threat to continue to metastasize in a way that will ultimately threaten the, the homeland directly and certainly threaten our allies. And so I would say there's probably three or four things that need to be done. We need to accelerate our assistance to our local partners on the ground. And as Fran mentioned, we have great difficulty in dealing with sub-state actors, non-state actors. How do we actually get arms to the right people on the ground who are actually fighting this fight for us or with us? Uh, the complaints on the ground, we've had researchers on the ground, and the complaints from the Peshmerga, for example, is the Americans are too slow. They're just too slow. So we need urgency in supporting those who are actually fighting this. We need to be willing to accept some risk with special ops uh, in places where uh, we do have allies, but where the threat is metastasizing. Libya, I would imagine, is, is one example of that. Third, we, we have to be able to galvanize the international community. Uh, Secretary Carter seems to be doing that. The French very much see themselves at war. We need to actually pull our allies full-throated into this, and that means with more bodies on the ground doing more things. Finally, we need more intelligence. I mean, the, 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 the dark secret here is we are running blind as to what's happening on the ground in many places. Um, folks like Tom Sanderson and others from CSIS have done incredible work in some of the hardest places around the world. Just got back from West Africa, and he's frequently asked by the government to come brief, and he's revealing things to the government that they just don't know. And the reality is we are blind as to what's happening. And so um, that, in addition to other things like amplifying what we're doing on countering the ideology and, and, and a few other things has to be a priority for the, for the next president. 
Grant. I, I think that's right. So I, 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 I call it scale and urgency. Juan's talked about the urgency piece. Some of this, you know, we can't presume, I, this used to frustrate me when I was in government, so I'll say it for the current administration. <laughs> Um, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening, right? And so you ought to presume that there are all sorts of things that the administration is doing that they can't talk about, whether that involves the military and intelligence and, and covert action. So we can't presume that they're doing nothing. Right. But it, it is a question of doing more of that and doing it faster. Two things one didn't mention that he would have, because he, he knows it and he's done it himself, y you have to accelerate the, what we call the decapitation strategy. That is, we do know a good deal about the leadership and the structure. Um, we need more intelligence to execute against a decapitation strategy of the organization. We have to do better about cutting their finances. Nobody knows more about this than Juan. It's not just sanctions, it's actually the money. It is bombing banks, it is targeting with lethal force the financers of the effort. And so there's a bunch of pieces of this we know how to do but we've got to scale it up and we've got to go after it faster than we have. And Libya's one example of where we've failed to do that so far. I just thank God every day I don't have to wake up and advise the president on how to fix this because if there were an easy answer, Lord knows we would have done yeah. it. I mean, as a reporter, you just get to ask what you're doing and not doing and then criticize it on air mm -hmm. the next day. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I will say that, that I agree wholeheartedly with the point the two of you have made. I cover intelligence every day. And um, while we don't, as a reporter, I don't have a security clearance, I, I can't tell you definitively that that we don't know that much about ISIS, but it certainly appears that way. They are, it's just a hard nut to crack, you know, in places where you don't have diplomatic staff, you don't have an official CIA station, there's only so much you can do with electronic surveillance and encryption problems, and the human intelligence is not what anybody wishes it was. Um, it, you know, the journalism side of this is also interesting. These are places where even seasoned colleagues of mine who are not known for shirking dangerous assignments really think twice about going. And it does mean there are whole parts of the Middle East, whole parts of the Middle East where we are blind. Um, and, and farther into the Muslim world, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, areas where it is increasingly difficult for journalists to operate. We've always known you go into a war zone, you're accepting a risk. But there's that, and then there's being targeted just for being a journalist and being beheaded. That's a different thing. Um, and it's scary, and we don't know as much as we would like. I mean, any reporter who's gone to dangerous areas of the world has had the experience of coming back, and one of the first phone calls you get is from the State Department, and then you hear from the White House, and they want to know what you've seen, because journalists can move in places where the government can't. Um, and you figure out how much you're able to share without crossing the line and being what you're being accused of being and, and being a spy. Um, but they want to know who, you know, okay, we can tell from your on-air reporting you met with General so-and-so, who was in the room? Who had his ear? You know, when he was looking for, for advice, who was, who was he turning to? They're not in that room, they can't say it. Um, and that is happening less and less. I mean, I talked to my colleagues who have been, you know, from, from the beginning, uh, you know, in the Gulf War, through, um, this is a really hard threat to track and we just don't know as much as we would. So I guess in terms of advising the president, I'd say try to put more money into 
finding out what we don't know, and, and that dictates how you allocate your resources. Do you think the threat now, uh, this to all of you, uh, is to the homeland, to us uh, here in the United States, is greater from the homegrown terrorists as we as we've seen recently, or or is it still from from someplace else? I still think Al-Qaeda or ISIS has a great deal of trouble of mounting sort of a, a well-executed multi-person sort of uh, operation, sort of importing people into the U.S. to, to do that. Um, you know, Paris was kind of a wake-up call, though, because in some ways, Bob, it was the manifestation of what we had always worried about, and Fran and I worked on this uh, along with others, in the Iraq foreign fighter context. We were always worried about the foreign fighters flowing out and back and coming back to attack in the homeland or in Europe never quite happened. Part of the reason was a lot of them were killed in, in theater. Uh, part of it had to do with good police work and good diplomacy. Um, and part of it had to do with just the changing environment. What Paris demonstrated was they do have the ability to move back and forth, and they have a, an ability to plan pretty significant strategic attacks in the West as a result. And so I don't think we should be Pollyannish about thinking, well, we're, we're safe, we're across the Atlantic, it's not, never going to happen. But I think they do have a lot more difficulty planning those kinds of attacks. What is most dangerous is the animation of those who are um, motivated by the, the ideology that have been radicalized, that have moved to that third stage of mobilization that I described, and are either deployed or given the entrepreneurial you know, sort of free reign to decide to attack in ways that are strategic. And I think one of the dangerous things that, that we've seen is even if an attack doesn't have a major body count or doesn't bring down a major building or isn't an attack on a, an installation, um, these guys are, uh, and sometimes women, are figuring out how to attack in places that we not, not only have vulnerabilities, but that will have strategic resonance. And so Charlie Hebdo and the kosher attack had strategic resonance for debates happening in France and the West. San Bernardino impacted the presidential debate and the questions about refugees. So the, even if you have two or three people killed, the fact is that these people can have strategic impact. And so I do worry most about the animation of people here, American citizens included, who may decide to attack in ways that ultimately have impact beyond the body count. I think in terms of, uh, look, when you're sitting in the seat, you worry about both. Um, talking to folks who are sitting in those seats today, uh, I think the sort of harsh reality is if it is a homegrown attack, um, it is a self-radicalized individual, the harsh reality is you are likely to see, tragic as it will be, fatalities in the, let's call it the double digits. And that's bad. I mean, I don't misunderstand me. But there is, because of ISIS's devotion of resources currently uh, to its external operations and the rise, and you see that in the number of attacks and the increasing lethality, we are increasingly likely to see an externally driven, that is a foreign fighter who is experienced and deployed into the United States, that kind of large, that kind of an attack will have far more casualties. It will be simultaneous, multi-pronged, will have multiple individuals involved. That, that we had, we and, and the current administration, from Al-Qaeda, we had sort of deteriorated their capability to do that. And we thought we wouldn't have to face that again. And what we're currently at a point is, 
ISIS has developed the external operations capability. We'd be foolish to think, having deployed it in places like Paris and the Sinai and Jakarta, that we were immune to it. We don't think we are, and so we are likely facing a period of increased threat of that kind of an attack here in the home. I, I think the lessons of Paris are not entirely clear to me yet. I mean, it was, what happened was clearly hideous. It was 130 people, not 3,000. There was a lot of talk about how sophisticated it was, and in some ways it was clearly you know, coordinated, planning was involved, you know, getting weapons which are harder to get there than here, all of that. It wasn't months of flight school and commandeering four jumbo jets. It was not 9-11. And, and to me, one of the big questions is, you know, would ISIS like to pull something like that off? I assume so. You know, what is that path? How are they actually trying to move along that? Are they? Are they happy to do something like a Paris-style attack, which is devastating, which shuts down a city, which prompts you know, possibly the, the dissolution of the Schengen Agreement and the closing of borders mm -hmm. across Europe. I mean, huge impact, economic impact, and 130 tragic lives lost. But again, it's not 9-11. And, and what measures have we put in place that's kept that from happening? How do you keep doing it? It's not 9-11, but let me just say this. It, it, there were, what, half a dozen suicide vests. It, not so easy to successfully construct ones that are all either detonate or, or are capable of detonating. So, by the way, there is a very capable bomb maker running around Europe somewhere. You know what I mean? So it, it's not 9-11. I agree with that. But we, you have to be careful not to underestimate. Um, there's a capability there that yeah. I think we are increasingly surprised yeah. at. And right under the noses of the French, right. some of the most sophisticated counterterrorism operators in the world. Let's take a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, let's see, where are we? Okay, right here on the front row. We'll start on the front row. Questions, not statements. <laughs> but you know uh, yes, uh, my name is Kami Bhatta. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question to Ms. Kelly is uh, not about our war on uh, terrorism, but uh, American media or American intellectuals' war on Mr. Donald Trump. You see, you pick up any newspaper and you will see everybody is writing against him. Is he because he is very rich or very successful? I think he is going to be better president, even Reagan, if Donald Trump is elected. But why do American media hate him? Is, is that because he is not a sellout? He is not black. He wasn't born in Kenya. He is not Democrat. But every intellectual is writing against Donald Trump. What's wrong with him as a human being? Thanks. I mean, I'm not in love with him. But I'm just wondering that you pick up any newspaper, Washington Post or New York Times, every intellectual is writing against I mean, I'm Muslim. My name is Muhammad, as a matter of fact, my first name. I'm from Pakistan. He doesn't hate me. I'm a stockbroker. I'm a personal financial advisor. He loves money. I love money. He doesn't hate anybody, basically. So why do American intellectuals hate Donald Trump? Thanks. Why do American journalists hate Donald Trump? This is the question. That's the first I've heard. Usually I'm getting criticized. Why do you give Donald Trump so much airtime and coverage? That's, that's the complaint that we usually get. We sat around in the morning edition editorial meeting yesterday and today saying, do we cover the fact that he's not showing up at the debate? You know, it's just playing right into a brilliant public relations strategy that he's pulling off. We were talking right before we came out tonight. As many of you may have heard, Trump is 
skipping the debate, and he's hosting a, a benefit to, to help wounded warriors and is going to force every TV network uh, to do split screen time and have him there doing a, you know, a wonderful thing as the rest of these poor guys are up on stage debating. Yeah. Well, I, I don't. Let me just try to answer this. I, <laughs> number one, I don't think American journalists hate Donald Trump. Uh, I think he says these totally outrageous things. John McCain is a loser. I thought that was the end of Donald Trump's campaign when he said that. It wasn't. He talks about Megyn Kelly and what he said about her. I thought, surely to God, he won't get past that. People loved it. Uh, he, he just keeps saying, I thought from the very beginning that Donald Trump would be taken, that was to be taken seriously, because I knew the American people were very, very frustrated, and, and they were upset, and, and I think he is, is the result of that. Donald Trump says what a lot of people wish they had the nerve to say to their boss. And, and that, is, I think, is the core of his appeal. Uh, I think the, the reaction to the press is not, not that, we don't, that we hate Donald Trump. I don't hate him. Uh, but I'm astonished uh, to see uh, the campaign and the results uh, that he's getting. This, this is a campaign unlike any I've ever, I've ever covered, and I've covered a bunch of them. He's immune uh, to you fact something. so he frustrates yes. us. Yes, I mean... <laughs> This is not so much a campaign about facts and about issues as it is about attitude. That's, that's what's different here in this campaign. And so, no, we don't hate him. Uh, but I'm sure we, we're just sitting there sometimes saying, what? You know, that's, that would be my answer. Here's my man over here. I really have to follow that, I guess. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Uh, this just in for anyone who's looking for a Valentine's uh, Day gift uh, like available you on Amazon. That. You know, um, could you guys look book. at um, the uh, the value of George W. Bush? Hey, son, standing up, uh, Africom. Thank you. What was that? I did. The, the value of, of President Bush, forty-three, standing up, Africom. Look, I I, I do think um, I'll, I'll take it. Okay. Um, you know, in some ways, what we saw at the stand-up, prior to the stand-up of AFRICOM, was the increasing threat of al-Qaeda in Africa. Uh, you have Boko Haram, you've got Burkina Faso, where we've dealt with it, Mali and Mauritania. We'd, we had long worried about uh, the Islamic Maghreb uh, in North Africa, where we had faced the problem. And so there was a real crying need for capability in the region, not to displace the capability, but to work with local partners um, against the problem. So look, from my judgment, my, my assessment is I'm glad we have AFRICOM there now. Uh, we probably could have benefited from establishing it earlier. Um, but I think it's going to be there, and it's going to be there to stay. Anybody who thought that was solely to deal with al-Shabaab and Somalia and, and sort of the, the East Africa problem, it's, it's dealing with a much greater threat than that. Yeah, you look, you look at all the threats in the region, AFRICOM is critical. Um, and you look at just what happened to the Kenyans, having lost about 100 soldiers um, in the wake of the attack from al-Shabaab. I mean, this, this is a threat that's going to be with us 
and to have that platform, as Fran said, is critical as we work with partners, absolutely. Let's do one over here and hold these mics out because when you hold them too close, uh, it, it distorts the sound and we get a little echo here. The lady, that's fine. Thank you. So you um, touched on how ISIS have developed the external capabilities to reach out and radicalize people. But don't you think that the extreme rhetoric that the candidates are using within their campaigns, such as banning Muslims, is adding fuel to the fire and creating an internally driven mechanism for radicalization because it further divides society on ideological lines rather than focusing on integration and Islam as a religion? I, I think I addressed that earlier. I, I think we've got to be careful about our rhetoric, obviously, and I think, as I said earlier, the source of our strength is our unity, right? There's no question about that in our diversity, and I think to the extent we begin to divide our, our society and our culture in ways that begins to alienate uh, whole communities, uh, that's, that's a disaster, right? One of the sources of strength in this period has been the fact that the United States uh, actually believes in the, in the unity of our country and in the ideals of the American dream. Even some sociologists who look at the problem of radicalization have said one of the problems in Europe and the reason you have these, these pockets of radicalization, whether it's in Belgium or France or in the UK, is the fact that there isn't a notion of cohesive identity, right? There isn't an, a, a, a European dream. We have an American dream here, and to the extent that we begin to erode that by dividing our country, that actually weakens us long term. So absolutely right. That said, there isn't a moral equivalency here. Uh, the fact that Bashar al-Assad still remains in power is a major uh, and, and central source of radicalization and recruitment for foreign fighters. Uh, the, the fact that they're recruiting uh, the way that they are in terms of social media and pinpointing uh, weak actors in the system and drawing them in. They're very deliberate in this design and the radicalization is very real. We can, we can hurt, hurt that or help it, uh, but they're doing this on their own regardless of what we say. Well, we're about to run out of time. I'll take one more question right here on the front row. Thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz from Insight Iraq. On the topic of social media, and you, you talked about how great you know, the outreach is on, uh, from, uh, from ISIS. I wonder if you could, would care to comment on efforts for a counter-narrative, you know, US-supported uh, and, and otherwise. I mean, how, uh, in terms of evaluating the current efforts and perhaps how they can and should be improved or strengthened. Thank you. It's really tough. I mean, we're, there's a, a newly created office on the National Security Council trying to deal with uh, a you know, point person to, to address the counter-narrative to ISIL. They've tried to do this with some success, but not much, out of the State Department ever since 9-11, and I'm sure before, but with greater intensity after 9-11. Um, and if you watch what they come up with, it's, it's kind of lame, um, just to be... <laughs> Blunt, uh, so far, we're, we're actually interviewing the new White House point person on NPR recording tomorrow, so tune in next week. We'll see if they have a fabulous new strategy or how they're going about it. Ask them if they read any of our strategies documents. And we will <laughs> work on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at the online, it's, it's not just that, uh, you know, ISIS is on Instagram and Snapchat and, you know, they're, you know, Facebook a little bit, but that's really, you know, the, the 18 and 19-year-olds and 
early 20-somethings who they're targeting are on Instagram, they're on Snapchat, they're on WhatsApp, and they're across all those platforms. If you look at the online magazine that they publish and compare it to what Al-Qaeda was doing 10 years ago, it's night and day. It's, it's written, it's like, uh, you know, um, even know what the like cool, you know, print teenage boy magazine is, but like you want to read it. It's, it's really flashy and well done and funny. Um, and it is hard for the U.S. government sitting in the bowels of Foggy Bottom or the basement of the old executive office building to come up with something that is persuasive in, in, in the counter-narrative. Yeah, I, 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 I think the, the U.S. government's got to come to grips with they can't do this. Mm -hmm. They just can't. Even, even if they had a fabulous and they were perfect, the answer is that in order to persuade the audience that you're trying to persuade, you have to speak with some moral authority and credibility, and nobody in the U.S. government can do that. And so I'll give you one example. I, I do think that there are good examples in the nonprofit world. In Great Britain, there's not in my name. In the United States, I, along with Senator Joe Lieberman, created a, a thing called the Counter-Extremism Project. You have to have voices that are not affiliated with the United States government. There is an offensive piece to this, that is, there is no First Amendment right to post a beheading video on Twitter. There is no First Amendment right to have those sorts of images on a social media site. And so that's the offensive part. Nonprofits, as opposed to the government, can go after that and go after the private sector to take those, their, their responsibility to take those things down. Then there's the sort of more defensive, and that is the countering the narrative. And, and Juan has also done great work here. This is offering a legitimate alternative. Uh, Ad Admiral Eric Olson, who commanded the Special Operations Command, talks about if you really want to have a counter-narrative, it's about offering a legitimate and attractive option that's not ISIS. And so it's creating transparent governments in the Middle East that provide services to their people, that are fair and have rule of law and due process. I mean, it's creating open societies that are more attractive than what they're experiencing, what they would experience under ISIS. That's the best counter-narrative that exists, but that's not gonna come out of the basement of the EEOB <clears throat> or Foggy And it's not as easy as yeah. tweeting and following right, people yeah. on Snapchat and publishing articles, how to make a bomb in your mom's kitchen, which right. ISIS is on the ball with. Uh, well, on that happy note, <laughs> 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 on behalf of uh, TCU and uh, CSIS, thank you all for coming out on this night. I know it wasn't easy to